Our um, passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what have I forgiven if I have, if I have forgiven anything? I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've given it to, to guide us and to direct us and to draw us to yourself. And Father, we thank you also for your Holy Spirit that illumines our heart and works in us your, your word to conform us to the image of, of, your, of your Son, the Lord Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would be with Tom this morning, give him clarity and give him power, that he may present your word. And, Father, I pray that you'd give us hearts to obey you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Forgiveness. The gospel displayed, the devil disarmed. Uh, if, that's not a, if that's not a favorite theme for every Christian, something's wrong. In the, in the passage that we uh, considered last time, Paul defended and explained his decision to delay a previously announced plan to visit the Corinthian saints. In the time between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul had learned through Timothy that there, there was a serious and urgent problem going on in the church at Corinth. In response to Timothy's troubling report, Paul had made an unplanned visit to Corinth that had been brief, brief because it was very painful, both for him and for them. Then he had followed that that visit of rebuke with a letter of rebuke that uh, the commentators call the severe or stern letter. God did not preserve that letter for us for reasons of his own, but based on what Paul says about the letter here and again in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, we know some important things about it. Paul refers to the letter of re rebuke first in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in the in verse 4, which was just read, or actually it was just before this passage. He said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. He mentions this letter again in, in these verses that I'm going to read from chapter 7. 
starting at verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. A few verses later, verse 12, he says, So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but it was that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted. Now, some believe that all of this had to do with Paul's earlier rebuke of, uh, of the Corinthian saints back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for their failure to discipline a professing believer who was in an ongoing sexual relationship with his own stepmother. But everything that Paul says in defense of the letter that we're talking about and in defense of his change in travel plans indicates that, the, that the, the sin, the offense that Paul is now referring to is not that earlier sexual matter, but is instead a present calculated effort to undermine and to discredit Paul and his Christ-ordained ministry. The fact that both here and in chapter 7, Paul refers to the person who sinned in the singular, the offender, uh, that tells us that, that while the, the church in Corinth as a whole was guilty of a significant failure in this matter, there was one man who was at the center of this effort to discredit Paul. We'll call him the ringleader. And the identity of the ringleader was well known to Paul and to the saints at Corinth, but Paul never mentions that name. In light of Paul's uh, repeated defenses of his ministry in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's pretty evident that accusations against him had been growing in number and in severity over time. Some of the accusations were silly and petty, but others were exceedingly troubling. And those accusations were getting sufficient traction to make the possibility of an outright mutiny against Paul's apostolic authority within the church at Corinth all too real. And we can surmise from various passages that those accusations included accusations that Paul lacked the necessary eloquence in his preaching to be treated as a spiritual authority on anything. Oh, he... His letters were eloquent enough, but when he was among the Corinthians, he was not very impressive. Accusations that Paul could not be trusted because he had delayed the timing of his promised visit to Corinth. Even accusations that the real purpose for which Paul and his co-workers had been going from city to city in the Roman Empire gathering donations from the Christians was for their own gain and not for the benefit of the Jerusalem, the persecuted Jerusalem saints that Paul said he was gathering that money for. Whatever the specifics of the accusations that precipitated Paul's corrective visit, 
and stern letter of rebuke. It's clear that the interactions between Paul and the Corinthian saints had become very, very strained. Now I should mention here that based on Paul's comments in chapter 7, the church in Corinth as a whole had not embraced this rebellion against Paul and in the end had proven themselves to be innocent of colluding with this ringleader. So there may have been a few that had become convinced to participate in this mutiny, but, but the church as a whole did not. The sin for which Paul harshly rebuked the whole church at Corinth was a sin of omission, not of commission. It was for their failure to discipline this ringleader of the effort to discredit Paul and his co-workers, which in effect was to discredit Christ who had appointed Paul to this ministry. Back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had rebuked this same community of believers for failing, for another sin of omission, for failing to deal decisively with the, that professing believer who was engaged in a very serious and abominable sin. Now these same saints had yet again passively stood by on the sidelines while the instigator of an intended mutiny against Paul and thus against Christ had sowed seeds of very serious division within the church. And by God's mercy, Paul's unplanned visit and letter had already produced a constructive effect by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians. In verse 6 of this morning's passage, Paul says that the majority of the saints in Corinth had imposed what he calls a it's a, a sufficient, a sufficient punishment against the instigator. That punishment had likely consisted of excommunication, of setting that person out of fellowship for a time. And the purpose of that, uh, as we see in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, as we see in Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians 3, the purpose of that excommunication is not to be done with that person. It is to shame them in order to bring them back. The goal is restoration. Paul's tough love and the tough love that had been exercised by the church as a whole in Corinth had been used by God to produce genuine repentance on two levels. First, a godly sorrow on the part of the Corinthian saints for their prolonged failure to discipline this one who was instigating rebellion. And, then, and that sorrow had, had led to real action. It had led to a decisive discipline against this man. Secondly, the Holy Spirit had worked through the discipline imposed by the church on the ringleader to produce a genuine change of heart in that man, in that, that one who had instigated the rebellion. This was very encouraging. It was greatly encouraging for the Corinthian church. You guys, if you've ever been in a context where church discipline has been applied, uh, it's, it's very common that the, that the person just has nothing any longer to do with the church. Now, it was not as easy back in Paul's day to just go down the block to another church, right? But 
but a lot of people just, if discipline, they just bail. They just leave. Well, this man had responded. But the repentant response of the ringleader had smoked out yet another failure among some of the saints at, at Corinth. And that failure was an unwillingness to forgive and to affirm their love for this repentant brother. And it is on that failure that the passage focuses most directly, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Paul knew very well that the failure of the Corinthian saints to forgive this man was far more threatening to the health of the Corinthian church than whatever criticisms had been leveled against Paul and his co-workers. Here at the end of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, Paul speaks of the sorrow that had been caused through this hurtful and drawn-out conflict. In verse 5 he says, If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order to not exaggerate, to all of you. Now Paul's dismissal of the wrong done against him should be no surprise to us, even though he's the object of all this criticism. This is the same apostle who wrote to the, this same group of saints in 1 Corinthians 13 that godly love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And Paul practiced what he preached. He wasn't concerned with sorrow that had been produced in himself. The sorrow that Paul is concerned about here is first the sorrow that this confrontation had caused to the saints in the church at Corinth whom he, he loved as his own spiritual children. As we saw last time, it was precisely out of a desire not to worsen that sorrow that Paul had delayed his previously announced plan for an extended visit in Corinth. He knew that after his brief confrontational visit and after the strong letter of rebuke that followed that visit, he needed to wait on the Lord for a while. He needed to back off, put himself out of the picture while the Holy Spirit did his faithful work to bring about genuine repentance in all who had sinned in this matter. That's a great lesson for all of us. It's so easy to pounce and then nothing happens and you pounce again and then you pounce again. It's called nagging. I love that, that God is slow to anger and he's compassionate and he's gracious and we see this all throughout the scriptures. He waited 400 years to finally judge the Amorites for, what they, for their rebellion against him. Paul had done all of this, including his delay, out of very great love for these saints. But Paul's concern was not only for the sorrow that had been caused to the, the church at Corinth in this matter, it was also for the sorrow that the instigator of this rebellion was still experiencing even as Paul wrote this, this letter of 2 Corinthians. Here in verses 6 through 8, Paul presents a critical contrast between two words, sufficient and excessive. Sufficient and excessive. He says that the punishment imposed on the offender by the majority of the saints in Corinth 
had been sufficient. The Spirit had used the punishment to bring the man to godly sorrow and repentance, but because that punishment imposed by the church had persisted after the man had repented, the sorrow that that, that continued punishment had caused had moved from sufficient to excessive. Excessive. Paul's simple prescription to keep sufficient punishment from producing excessive sorrow is right here in verse 7. He says, now that God has brought that sinning believer to repentance, it's time for that man's brothers and sisters in Christ to forgive and comfort. And then in verse 8, to reaffirm their love for him. Forgive and comfort and reaffirm their love. Forgiveness that proceeds from godly love keeps necessary correction from becoming or producing excessive sorrow. The flip side of that that is also important. Withholding forgiveness turns constructive sorrow into excessive and destructive sorrow. Forgiveness, of course, is a very, very big deal in the Word of God. It's one of the biggest. In Luke 17, verses 1 through 4, Jesus said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then he says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now the first two verses of that passage are often treated as their own context, but they're not. See, the be on your guard follows from the warning that just preceded it. One of the harshest warnings that Jesus utters in his earthly ministry. He commands us to forgive a person who sins against us over and over, even if the one doing the sinning repeats the sin seven times in one day. Now that in itself, of course, is a paradigm shift for many of us. But our Lord's challenge to our typical way of doing these things gets even more unsettling. Because He commands us to forgive such a person even though every declaration that that person makes of his repentance is immediately followed by another instance of sin. And there's nothing at all in this passage to rule out the possibility that it's the same sin seven times in one day. And if this doesn't get our attention, beloved, then we must be asleep. What Jesus tells us here means that proving the legitimacy of a sinner's claim of repentance is not a prerequisite for forgiving that sinner. If it was a prerequisite, Jesus would have told us to withhold forgiveness until sufficient time had elapsed to demonstrate that the sin was not going to be repeated. 
Instead, the crystal clear assignment from Jesus is forgive, 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 forgive. That's one day's assignment toward one person. To the Christian who withholds that absolutely reliable pattern of forgiving every instance of sin, even when the sinner's claim of repentance seems to be contradicted over and over by his behavior, Jesus says it would be better for that Christian, for that unforgiving Christian, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. If that doesn't get your attention, then you must be asleep. Don't fail to notice that our unforgiveness makes God's beloved children stumble. And God doesn't like it when we do that. This isn't the only passage, by the way, in which forgiving someone seven times shows up in Christ's teaching in a way that stands our expectation on its head. In Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall I forgive my, uh, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. If you ever want to talk about it, I, I love to, I love to, the, the thought of where that came from, that seven, 70 times seven, because there's a, Old Testament precedent that I think is tied to that. Jesus then, right after saying that, Jesus launches into the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in that parable, the chief servant in the household of a wealthy master begs his master to give him time to pay off a debt that is so huge that there's actually no way, there's no way that that's, that chief servant is ever going to pay it off. No way. Something like 550,000 days wages for a hired laborer, not for a servant. Instead of demanding the repayment, his master feels compassion for him and he completely forgives the entire debt. But right after that, the same chief servant who had just been forgiven his impossible debt absolutely refuses to forgive a debt owed to him by a lesser servant who is under his, under his supervision, a debt that was minuscule compared with what the chief servant owed his master. When the master learns that the chief servant refused to pay forward the forgiveness that he had received, he orders the chief servant to be, hand, quote, handed over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed and then Jesus gives us his epilogue to the parable. He says, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, that's pretty tough stuff, right? If those words and the ones that we just read in Leviticus 17 about the millstone, if that freaks you out because you think it means that your own struggle to forgive someone means you're going to hell, let me clarify something. One of the foremost goals of our Lord's teaching during his brief earthly ministry before he went to the cross was to prove to men 
and women and children that we all desperately needed for him to go to the cross. And that's exactly what I believe he's doing in Luke 17 and Matthew 18. Jesus' teaching during the three years of his ministry established the true standard of God's law. The Pharisees and the, the Jews, they thought that standard was down here where they could reach it if they just jumped a little high enough. You know, just, just jumped high enough. Jesus said, no, that's not where the standard is. The righteousness God requires of you is his righteousness. And so he, Matthew 5.48, he says, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The only way, we talked about this this morning, the only way that any human being comes to have that righteousness credited to his account is through simple childlike trust in the atoning sacrifice and the imputed righteousness of Christ given to him as a free gift that he could never ever deserve. Having said all that, I want to make it also crystal clear that Jesus meant every word that he said. He told us exactly what God requires of us and he meant every word of it and he left no room for compromise of any kind. God's requirement condemns every unbeliever, but for us who believe, it tells us how we are to live by the power of the Holy Spirit who is now in us. God requires us to forgive as we have been forgiven. And God takes that very, very seriously. In verse 9 of this morning's passage, 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells the Corinthian saints that this is a test. He says, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. They were obedient in some things, but there was something really, really important that they had not been obedient in, and that something was forgiveness. In the same severe letter in which Paul had rebuked these saints for failing to deal with the ringleader of the seeds of mutiny in the church at Corinth, Paul had also exhorted the church to forgive that ringleader. That exhortation had presented a test of their obedience, a, a test that they must not fail. They had clearly obeyed Paul's instruction to discipline the instigator, but the fact that Paul had to write what we find here demonstrates that they had just as clearly not obeyed his instruction to forgive that man and to reaffirm their love for him. That was huge, because what was at stake was their fidelity to the gospel. We need to spend some time right here, beloved. This is important at the very highest level that you will find in all of the Bible. The two sins that Jesus condemned most forcefully during his earthly ministry were hypocrisy and unforgiveness. And for a Christian, the greatest hypocrisy of all is unforgiveness. For a Christian to withhold forgiveness from a fellow sinner is a functional denial of the very gospel by which that Christian was saved. Now, I'm not saying that 
that if you have failed to forgive another sinner, that means that you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that that failure is a negation in practice of the very gospel that you had to believe in order to be saved. Everybody here agree that we're supposed to practice what we preach? Refusing to forgive a fellow sinner, whether he is redeemed or unredeemed, is like taking the gospel that we preach, throwing it to the ground, and curb stomping it for the whole world to see. It rips the very heart out of the good news that Jesus commissioned us to bear to this world on his behalf. We talked this morning about being grateful ambassadors. That's not how you do it. The very first words that Luke records from the mouth of Jesus right after the Romans nailed him to the cross were the words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Did Jesus wait for proof of repentance or even for a declaration of repentance before asking his father to forgive his executioners? No. What about Stephen, the the deacon who went from waiting on tables in Acts chapter 6 to dying for Christ in Acts chapter 7? Because of Stephen's bold and faithful proclamation of the gospel and the miracles that God was doing through him. Stephen had been brought before the Sanhedrin, the the very same Jewish high court that had demanded the crucifixion of Christ. After listening to blatantly false accusations that were leveled against Stephen that sounded a lot like the accusations leveled against Jesus, the council allowed Stephen to testify for himself. In one of the longest sermons recorded in the New Testament, Stephen publicly shamed the Jews for their relentless history of rebellion against God, for their equally relentless history of persecuting and killing his faithful prophets. After hearing all the accusations against themselves that they were willing to listen to, the Jews drove Stephen out of the city and they began stoning him. As Stephen was dying a brutally painful death, and as the stones continued to strike him, he fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he breathed his last. Did Stephen wait for proof of repentance or even for a declaration of repentance before forgiving his executioners? No, he did not. Now let's talk about you and me for a moment. Did Jesus pour out his life for sinners like us before or after we stopped being enemies of God? Yesterday at Glenn Beatty's memorial service, our dear brother Colin took us to Romans chapter 5. In verse 8 of that chapter, Paul says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And two verses later, he says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So I ask again, 
Did Jesus pour out his life for sinners like you and me before or after we stopped being enemies of God? Before. We find our answer at the cross over and over and over. It was not our proven sorrow over our sin that opened the floodgates of God's life-giving grace and forgiveness toward us. It was only the richness of God's mercy and the lavishness of God's love toward enemies of God like you and me that opened those floodgates. In case anyone isn't convinced quite yet, let's look at two more passages in which God tells us through Paul with crystal clarity exactly what standard of forgiveness God requires of his redeemed children. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 to 5, verse 2. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You notice the connection there between forgiving and loving. See the same, we see the same connection in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How are, are you and I to forgive other people? Just as we have been forgiven by God in Christ. That's pretty simple. There are no caveats. There are no exceptions. Paul says, whoever has a complaint against anyone. What will it cost us to forgive fellow sinners as freely as God has forgiven us? A whole lot less than it cost God to forgive us. I should mention here that restoration is not the same issue as forgiveness. If a sin is serious enough or persistent enough to require church discipline, restoration will almost always require a period of time for the sinner to demonstrate the genuineness of his repentance before he is restored. The level of scrutiny and time that must be brought to bear will be even greater when restoration means putting the offender back in a position of leadership or authority of any kind in the body. But God's command to us to forgive as we have been forgiven does not come with such caveats. That requirement is dirt simple. In verse 10 of this morning's passage, Paul tells the Corinthians that whomever they forgive, they can know that he, Paul, also forgives. And that, again, shouldn't surprise us in light of what we are, we've already seen. Paul, Paul practiced what he preached. And he very consistently preached that forgiveness is a no-brainer for Christians. The last thing Paul says in verse 11 of our passage 
is that one of the huge reasons we are to forgive as freely as we have been forgiven is, quote, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. That, that combination reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16. Right after Peter acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and I believe Jesus is the rock, I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of hell will not overpower my church. And he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I'm absolutely convinced that 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 assignment is given to the church, not to the Pope, sorry. (laughs) Neither Jesus nor Paul is saying that Peter or anyone else is authorized to arbitrarily declare one sinner to be forgiven and another sinner to be unforgiven. What both are saying is that God has handed His church a solemn and mighty assignment We are to tell every sinner who puts his faith in Jesus that his sins have been forgiven in full. And we are to tell every sinner who persists in rejecting Jesus that his sin is still on his own head and that he stands eternally condemned in the eyes of God until and unless he puts his trust in Jesus. God has authorized us with his authority to make those declarations to other people. We are to do so with absolute confidence that we're speaking for Christ, saying exactly what He has said. What we loose on earth by His authority, based on His Word, He is already loosed in heaven, and what we bind on earth, He is already bound in heaven. In doing so, beloved, we are destroying Satan's favorite foothold, to cripple Christians and to keep unbelievers out of the kingdom. And we are storming the very gates of hell on Christ's behalf. I love what our brother Stephen said at the leadership, Steve Novogratz said at the leadership meeting. Gates are a defensive mechanism. And if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that means we're gonna, we are going to tear down the gates of hell. Our, march, our marching orders, beloved, are to proclaim to all who will listen that forgiveness of their entire sin debt to God is guaranteed if they will simply put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And our assignment is to freely forgive others for every sin that they commit against us just as God has forgiven us of our infinitely greater sin debt owed to Him. It's Simple. We're out of time, so I'll keep my conclusion brief. Uh, In a gathering this size, it is inevitable that some of you are hanging on to resentment against a fellow sinner. Might be a family member, might be a co-worker, might even be someone else in this room. Brothers and sisters, no matter how terrible the sin that that other person committed against you, or against someone that you love, that resentment, that withholding from a fellow sinner of the forgiveness that God has lavished upon you, 
is poison to your soul and it is poison to Christ's church, even if nobody else knows about it. It is a negation of the very gospel by which you yourself stand forgiven in the eyes of God. You might be thinking, well, I've tried to forgive the person who hurt me, but it's just not working. It does no good for me to say I've forgiven someone when I still feel anger and resentment against them. You ever heard that? Satan absolutely loves it when you and I measure obedience based on how we feel. He loves it. He loves it when we do that because it always keeps us from moving forward in godliness. Always. The forgiveness that Paul commands in this passage is manifested by actions, not by feelings. We comfort the one who has sinned against us, and the word comfort we looked at in the first chapter means that you, you build up and encourage, in courage, you impart courage. We comfort the one who has sinned against us and we affirm our love for that person. That's what Paul says to do here. When the offender is a fellow, fellow child of God, as is the case here, the comfort God commands us to give to that brother or sister is God's assurance that Jesus already paid the debt of his sins, all of them, in full at the cross. That that brother or sister stands spotless and blameless in the eyes of God clothed just as we are in the perfect righteousness of Christ. So how can we not forgive them? God commands us to affirm our love for that brother or sister. And you know what that means? That means you say it. You say it. I love you. As God has loved me. The perfect love. Mine's not perfect, but it comes from Him. If we obey those commands, beloved, our feelings will follow our faithfulness. That's how feelings work. Even if the one who sinned against me is an unbeliever, I have the marvelous privilege to tell that person about the forgiveness that God has poured out freely upon me on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. I get to tell that unbeliever that his sin against me is of no consequence at all compared to the infinite debt of my sin against a perfectly holy God. And that sin has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and canceled out. It has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. Brothers and sisters, resentment comes crashing down like the house of cards that it is when we in childlike obedience to Christ, simply speak and act upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that already pulled us out of the darkness of slavery to sin into the astonishing light of our Savior. Obeying these very straightforward commands of God is the only way that you and I will ever be freed from the crippling snare of resentment against a fellow sinner. And obey we must for the sake of the Gospel, for the vitality of the church, and for the advancement of the kingdom of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear Father, we pray that You will not relent in Your loving correction of us 
every time we withhold forgiveness from a fellow sinner. For the sake of Christ, make us faithful to forgive as we have been forgiven by you in him. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.